Right now we want to uh, come before the Lord and seek His guidance and, and His uh, His direction here and uh, petition Him. So if you will kneel with me, if you can. Let's pray together. Our Father which art in heaven, oh Lord, hallowed be Thy name. We come before You praising You, thanking You for so many things. Each and every day, uh, the blessings are just, they're multiplied. And we thank You, Lord. Even some of the heartaches we go through, we know that You're right there with us. And You comfort us. And Father, we we praise You for answered prayer. Susan, her back's uh, uh, healing or the pain has, has eased. Oh Lord, we praise You for Your love. Lord, we, we praise You for uh, providing the necessities of life. Matthew 6.33 is a fantastic promise that we claim so often. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things, all these necessities will be given unto you. And we, we see it every day and we praise Your name for that. Help us to stay on the right path, Lord. Seeking your righteousness and kingdom first, above all things. Father, it's a privilege to, to be able to come before you and to bring these things to your attention. We know that you know, you know, you know what's in our hearts. We pray for Sister Gates. She has an unspoken prayer. We, we also pray for her two sons that are in Michigan. She will be with all our children. We care deeply for and love, and we get maybe a little taste of your love towards us in our love for our children. And we wish that you would protect them and keep them safe and bring them, Lord, to the kingdom. Whatever it takes, Lord, that they may be in the kingdom. We lift up Susan's cousin Kim going through a divorce. We know that that's not your ideal. Divorce was never something that was to happen. But look what sin has wrought. We pray that you will touch hearts in that, in that instance. and May they come to know thee. Father, we pray that you will continue to be with your people. Help us to come into unity. Help us to be organized to finish the work. Whatever sphere you would have us in. Father, we pray that you forgive us where we failed. Forgive us for our sins. We're still here. We can hasten our Lord's return. Help us to that end. Pour out your grace upon us, the Holy Spirit in power, that we can finish this mission field and go home. Father, I pray that you'll be with me as I bring this, this subject to the attention of the congregation. As we study your word, may we glean the principles, and above all, Lord, that we be filled with compassion not just to have a knowledge, to have a love for the truth and to share this truth and to take these principles and put them into practice so that those who are in error can be reconciled and those who are away can come back. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus who made this all possible. Thank you for your love and allowing your Son to come. And we thank you for Jesus who died for us yet lives again and gives us hope. Please be with the families and and the children, the teachers. Be with me as I bring the word to the congregation. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Give me a little drink of water before we get started here. We're still in our theme, which we have been in for a good while. This is my body. You remember that? We talked about the characteristics of the church and and we're we're kind of transitioning. What I'm doing is transitioning a little bit between the characteristics of the church, which we covered, and, and getting into uh, how the church is to be organized. But there are some things that those who are in congregations now, and they've learned about who and what the church is, and now they, they may be faced with you know decisions, <laughs> and, uh, and rightly so. And uh, we're kind of covering some of those things. And, and what, if you, what if you come... Uh, to the truth here and the knowledge of this, and you find that you know you're in a you're in a congregation that uh, that is not uh, a part of the body of Christ, according to the Word of God. You know, what do you do? How do you deal with sin? How do you deal with error within your congregation? Because that'd be your first step, wouldn't it? Isn't that what the Bible lays out? Well, that's what we're going to find out entitled this God's Checks and Balances. And uh, um, this is part one. Next week, by God's grace, we'll, we'll see part two. We'll get into that. But on May 15th, you know, you, you all know that I'm kind of a history buff. I can read and read and read about things of the past <laughs> so often. But uh, some of the things that, uh, that I really interest me are like... Uh, the founding of this country, the United States of America. And we see a changing happening in this country than we have for a number of years, but not like we have in the last few years, a changing of the founding principles of this country. And on May 15th in 1776, the Second Continental Congress, meeting in uh, Independence Hall in Philadelphia there, they issued a resolve to the 13 colonies. And this is what it was. Adopt such a government as shall, in the opinion of the representatives of the people, best conduce to the safety and happiness of their constituents in particular, and America in general. That was their resolve. And so between 1776 and 1780, each of the 13 colonies adopted a republican form of government. That means representative form of government. That the citizens were sovereign. And what emerged was the most extensive documentation of the powers of government and the rights of the people that the world has ever witnessed. These state constitutions displayed a remarkable uniformity. If you went throughout, it was remarkable. Seven attached a prefatory declaration of rights and all contained the same civil and criminal rights. Four states decided not to prefix a a bill of rights to their constitutions, but instead incorporated the very same natural and traditional rights found in the prefatory declarations. Uh, New York incorporated the entire Declaration of Independence into its constitution. And the primary purpose of these declarations and bills was to outline the objectives of government to secure the right to life, 
liberty, property, the pursuit of happiness. And the government that was chosen to secure these rights was declared universally to be a republican form of government. They studied the past kingdoms, how they fell, what they were originally uh, uh, created as, what form of government they were. And they found the best to be a republican form. In all of the states except Pennsylvania embraced a two-chamber legislature and all of the states except Massachusetts installed a weak executive branch and denied the governor the power to veto bills of the legislature. All accepted the notion that the legislative branch should be preeminent but at the very same time endorsed the concept that the the liberty of the people was in danger from the corruption of the representatives. And this despite the fact that the representatives were installed by the election of the people. Checks and balances, friends. Checks and balances. And so each state constitution embraced the notion of short terms of office for elected representatives along with uh, the ability to recall (laughs) those representatives and rotation, and term limits. They all have these. In other words, each constitution embraced fair checks and balances to limit the government and promote individual liberty. And like I said before, you know, the, the right to life, liberty, property, and pursuit of happiness. Well, that's a nice history lesson, Pastor Joel. But what has that to do with God's church and organization principles? Well, consider this. Just where do you think the idea of limited government and individual liberty originated with such checks and balances to assure freedom of conscience? Well, friends, you'll find such principles within the Word of God. God has laid out principles of organization. He's laid out checks and balances in governing that organization to keep it from falling into apostasy. To be that shining light on a hill, see? And falling into apostasy, in in other words, in forming a different organization, which we've learned means joining the Antichrist organization known as Babylon, fallen today. Well, just what are these checks and balances? Well, that's the topic of this message. Again, I've entitled this God's Checks and Balances. In the fifth chapter of Daniel, we find an interesting scenario concerning the the kingdom of Babylon and its leader at the time, Belshazzar. Babylon was under siege by the Medo-Persians, but her ruler had no care for that. He had no worries The only thing he had on his mind at this particular time that we're going to talk about is a a party that he had planned for that day. Now Babylon was a great city. It had 60 miles of moat. Its 60 miles of outer wall was 300 feet tall, 90 feet wide. Its 30 miles of river wall through its center Its gates of solid brass, including the famous Ishtar Gate, that's the eastern gate. Its hanging gardens, rising terrace above terrace, till they equaled in height the walls themselves. Babylon. You know, it was estimated 
that this city could withstand a siege, like the Medo-Persians were sieging them, for 20 years. They were self-sustained. It was the greatest wonder of the world at that time, Babylon was. So, Belshazzar, he had no worries about the Medo-Persians. No, he only had feasting on his mind, didn't he? And it was during that drunken revelry that Belshazzar ordered that the vessels of the temple of the Creator God, which his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the triumphant, his triumphant victory there at Jerusalem, he ordered that they be brought to the party so that he and his guests could drink from them in honor of their idols. And I'll tell you, in, this, in what the Bible lays out, the Creator God, He didn't take kindly to the mocking of His divinity. And so He sent a message to Belshazzar in the form of a hand that appeared to the, to the king and all the guests there. And the hand wrote a message on the wall for the king. And by the way, this is where we get the old saying, the handwriting is on the wall. Did you know that? And here's this message. His hand appears, a message is written on the wall, and Belshazzar was so afraid that the Bible says his knees smote one against another. In other words, his knees knocked together. But the king and his servants couldn't interpret the message of the hand, so he, he sent for who? He sent for the prophet Daniel. He was told that this was someone who could interpret such things. And here's the message God sent to Belshazzar as interpreted by Daniel the prophet. We'll go to Daniel 5, verses 25 to 28. Verse 25, And this is the writing that was written, Many, many, tekel upharsim. This is the interpretation of the thing. Many, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Tekel, thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Perez, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Was God true to His word? What happened to Babylon that very night? Go down to verse 30. In that night was Belshazzar the king of the Chaldeans slain. And Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about three score and two years old, about 62 years old. Now, friends, what, what brought my attention, or grabbed my attention, and prompted me uh, in this particular study, is the words that are found in verse 27. Thou art weighed in the balances. Weighed in the balances. You see, the message to Belshazzar was one of judgment. God told Belshazzar that he had been judged and he'd been found guilty. You were found wanting. Found wanting. Now what struck me was that God used a system, you see, to judge Belshazzar. He used a system that has checks and balances in order to render a righteous verdict against, in this case, the king the leader there of Babylon. Now, not only does God use the same system for all of us, He teaches us to use it too. For God hates sin, and He wants us to hate it like He does and deal with it like He would want us to deal with it, like He would. 
Too many times I hear, sad to say, excuses for sin in the church, and I hear that we are not to judge others. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Oh, in other words, turn a blind eye to open sin. And what happens? The sin often remains unchecked. And it doesn't just remain there. It grows and affects everyone. So friends, we're going to take a look at some principles on how to correctly deal with with sin within the church. I'm going to share God's checks and balances on how to properly deal with those who have sinned with that are within the church. And I want to emphasize that these principles deal with those who are in the church. <laughs> okay? Not those who are not members. For the church, it has no authority over unbelievers. Only God has actual authority over unbelievers. God has authority over all, does He not? I heard a sermon not long ago from a preacher who was teaching that we are not to judge anyone, ever. And I was disappointed. I was disappointed he didn't, he didn't make a clear distinction from God's Word concerning righteous and unrighteous judgment. And the sad thing is that, that these kinds of messages from the pulpits have brought nothing but confusion. And they've enabled Satan to cast righteousness out the door of the church. If we as ministers and leaders of God's faithful do not stand up and call sin by its right name, then we shouldn't be so shocked to see the church in the condition that it's in. And while it's true, and we'll find this out in a few minutes, that we cannot judge the motives, we can't judge the intents of the heart of anyone, we can judge their fruits. Jesus said in Matthew seven sixteen, You shall know them by their fruits. So we must judge in some way. Judge not lest ye be judged. Right? There's got to be some kind of judgment made. And our scripture reading for this lesson, John seven twenty four, Jesus said, Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. So there's a time and a place that God's people must exercise righteous judgment. Now let's go to one of the most misunderstood scriptures. That's the one I brought up. I think it's one of the most misunderstood, misunderstood scriptures in, in, in all the Bible. Matthew chapter 7. Back up to the beginning of Matthew 7. Verse 1. This is Jesus speaking. Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you. Now what's he talking about here? Well, let's look up the word judge. Judge is Strong's number 2919. It's the Greek word krino. And it primarily means to judge, to determine, to condemn. And that's important. It's important to understand the meaning here. To condemn. So what exactly does Christ's statement mean? Does not that you be not judged. Does it mean that we're never to judge in any circumstance? That it doesn't matter what, a, what a, a member does in the church or out of the church? 
Are we never to judge any situation but just passively let fellow church members do whatever they're, they're going to do and, and not say anything about it or do anything about it? Is, is that what this means? Is that what Jesus is saying? Absolutely not. Jesus is referring to judging another's motives, to condemning a person, not to judging the right or wrong of his acts. I think we, we understand that God alone is competent to judge men's motives because of the fact that He alone is able to read our innermost thoughts, to read our heart. Hebrews 4 and verse 12 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints of the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. (laughs) For the word of God is, it says. We read it, it will cut to the quick as we contemplate our actions against it. That's inside We're able to discern, though, in others, only the outward appearance and not the heart. So we inevitably make mistakes, don't we? Jesus is not referring to discrimination by which a Christian is to uh, distinguish between right and wrong, but rather to the habit of, too often, you know, sharp, usually unjust criticism and condemnation of another person. Jesus is also telling us that the measure we give will be the measure we receive. For injustice usually provokes injustice, doesn't it? But more than that, the injustice of one man toward his fellow men provokes divine judgment. As Jesus taught in this parable of the, you know, in that parable of the uh, the unforgiving servant. You remember that? So we may condemn the offense, but like God, we must ever be ready to forgive the offender. And we can extend mercy to the offender without in any way condoning the evil that they have done. And another thing to consider is that if we do judge righteously, we will be judged in the same manner. We will be judged righteously. Maybe not by our fellow humans, but definitely by God. You see, the Bible says that we will reap what we sow. Isn't that right? So... Let us sow righteousness and we're going to reap righteousness. Now, Jesus expanded on what He said there in Matthew 7. Let's go back and look at verse 3. He says, And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, the beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite! First cast out the beam out of thine own eye, then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Does that sound like, well, we're not to judge him in any way? No, he says first, cast out the beam out of your eye, then you can do that. See? The first thing that needs to be done before we can be in a position to judge righteously is for us to be in a spiritual condition where we can see clearly. we got to get that beam out of our eye. I'm sure, you know, that as a carpenter there in Nazareth, Jesus may have gotten sawdust or a small splinter of wood in his eye from time to time. He had experience with wood. He knew what he was talking about concerning the moat, and he used it to teach a lesson about how to judge righteously. But how often do we 
we see so-called Christians express profound indignation at the course others have taken, or are presumed to have taken, only to have later events reveal that they themselves are guilty of the very sins of which they accuse those others. It happens all too often, doesn't it? This was true of the Pharisees who brought to Jesus the woman taken in adultery. This is also true of Simon when he judged Mary. It's only when we are ready and willing to suffer, if need be, in order to help our erring brother that we can see clearly enough to be of any help to him. So Jesus is saying that there are conditions we must meet in order to qualify as having clear vision to make sound judgments regarding our brethren. Jesus said one time, didn't he? He said that without him we can do what? Nothing. So we must be born-again believers in Christ and have our eyes cleansed by Him before we can see clearly enough to cast out the moat from a brother's eye. And those who are hypocrites, ready to criticize and condemn others, are not in a condition to judge righteously, are they? So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's go there for an example. This is an example of open sin and how the Apostle Paul counseled to deal with it. Open sin in the church. This will help us to keep sin in check with, within not just the church, but in the family as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is reported commonly, it's Paul speaking, that there is fornication among you, and such fornication it is not so much as named among the Gentiles. In other words, he's saying, even the Gentiles consider it a terrible act. That's what he's saying that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he hath done this deed. Might be <clears throat> that he that has done this deed might be taken away from you. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already, as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. So what Paul's saying is, look, I don't have to be there to have seen it to know. There was enough corroborated evidence to make a righteous judgment without actually being present there. This is what Paul's saying. Verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorifying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? By the way, what is leaven? What's he mean by that? Well, <laughs> yeah, he's speaking using as, as a symbol for sin. Leaven is applied to that which, though small in quantity, yet by its influence thoroughly pervades a thing. See? Either in a good sense, as in the parable of, oh, Matthew 13, you know, where Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, or in a bad sense, of a bad influence, as is the case here. Yeah, yeast. Yeast is a leaven, though, isn't it? Yeah. So, Paul is saying that a little sin left in the church unattended is going to spread. And it'll continue to spread like fire in the stubble and create bigger problems unless it's dealt with head on and extinguished with the water of the Word, if I may say so. Paul continues, verse 7. 
He says, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast. And Paul's speaking here about the communion. That's what he's speaking about here. He says, Keep the feast, communion. Not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote unto you in an epistle, not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. In other words, he's saying, don't isolate completely, don't isolate yourselves completely, but be in the world, but not of the world, is what he's saying. But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner. With such a one, no, not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? But them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Who is, who is Paul addressing here in these scriptures? He's not addressing those that are outside of the church, is he? This is what he's, this is what he's saying. No. Is Paul addressing the world church? No. Paul is addressing the church at Corinth. The body of believers calling themselves Christians there at Corinth. He's dealing with this local church problem at the local level. And this is an important principle to understand, friends. Because sadly, some want to take their local church problems while they're trying to deal with them and broadcast it to all the churches and even the world before biblical principles have been carried out. And I'll tell you, they make a grave mistake by doing this. Because you see, we must explicitly adhere to God's principles in dealing with sin in the church. Now, it may lead to going to the, to all the churches, but it's got to start at the local level. You see, because the object is to bring repentance and reconciliation between members and the church and not to be a reproach to the world, possibly destroying any witness that we may have. So carefulness is warranted. There's a time and place for everything, and we must follow the principle as directed. Now, Paul is also telling us here that we must deal decidedly with those within the church who know the truth and yet choose to commit known sins, such as this man in the church of Corinth. He was sleeping with his father's wife. Now, this wasn't his mother. This was another wife of his father. Okay, The father may have been dead or his wife may have run away or been divorced by him. We don't know. It's interesting, though, that this was considered a crime and it was punishable by death according to Jewish law. And interestingly enough, Roman law also forbade such a relationship. The thing is, this man was in open sin. Everyone knew what he was doing. It wasn't a rumor. It was attested to as fact by many credible witnesses. The church was even letting this man partake of communion, knowing he was in open sin. 
Let me ask you something. Did the Corinthian church there, did they show good judgment in how they reacted to this? Absolutely not. See, the church members were self-complacent. They were proud of their spiritual status. And instead of hanging their heads in shame, that Paul is saying, they should have been hanging their heads in shame that such wickedness had broken out in their midst. They weren't doing that. Now, this doesn't mean that they were elated or proud because of this evil thing in the church, but they were filled with spiritual pride in spite of it, see? They should have humbled themselves before the Lord and taken steps to remedy the situation. But you know, you think about it, maybe they were, maybe they were thinking, maybe they were, were under that delusion of judge not lest ye be judged. Friends, the presence of gross wickedness in the church is always a cause for sorrow to those members who have the best interests of their brethren at heart, isn't it? To those who are jealous for the good name of the church, the name of Christ. The righteous cannot be satisfied and happy when a brother in a church loses his way and falls into grievous sin. And something else we must consider, and this goes along with one of the principles we're going to look at in Matthew chapter 18, is that the prohibition by Paul included social meals as well as the Lord's Supper. Why? Why was he saying this? Remember we studied last week? Why why did 36 men die at AI there. God cannot condone sin. Believers should do nothing that would give observers reason to believe that defiant transgressors of God's law are recognized as Christian brothers in good standing. The standard of truth, the standard of purity must be held higher. It weakens the witness to repent. They become settled in their sin and proud of it. And Paul was stressing this to the church there at Corinth because the, the enemies of Christianity in that particular area accused believers of various forms of crime and vice. Remember, he said, even the Gentiles see this as, as evil. They were seeing it. And if it became known that Christians tolerated in their midst or or had close contact with wicked and immoral persons, those accusations and reports would, what would happen? They'd receive support and be considered reliable. Who'd want to be a Christian? Is that what Christ is? So it was necessary to withdraw completely from wickedly impenitent apostates and let it be known that the church had no connection with them Remember, friends, come out of Babylon and be ye separate. Touch not the unclean thing. This is a principle. We've studied this principle before. And only then could the church be kept pure and free from the contaminating influence of these apostate sinners who refuse to repent and give up their wickedness. 
So the Corinthian believers should have been very concerned over this evil and should have proceeded to remove the offender from the church according to the disciplinary measures as laid out in Scripture. The principles that God has laid out. Friends, they must be conducted with proper motives too. Never. And that's a strong word. But never should anger or pride or revenge or dislike or any carnal sentiment of the natural heart prompt church members to take action against an offending brother. On the contrary, there should be compassionate love and tender pity manifested toward them, together with care, lest anyone else fall into the same error. You see, the Corinthians were guilty of faulty spiritual eyesight. And one reason they were in such a condition is explained in Paul's second epistle to them. And by the way, you read, uh, this particular person did repent, it appears. Which is good news, isn't it? 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Paul says here, he says, Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Examine yourselves. Remember that... Uh, We read at the beginning of our services today, there in Psalms 119, looked at my ways, examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? Reprobates, what's he mean? He means, unless you be unprincipled, corrupt, depraved, totally bad. (laughs) We must examine ourselves and remove the beam from our eyes by the grace of Christ so we may see clearly and make righteous judgments, friends. Church members at Corinth were failing to do this. And so the results were that, what? Grievous sins were prevalent among them. This is what Paul was writing to them. He wrote them two letters. These things were going unchecked. This was affecting their own spiritual walk to a point where they were allowing the unrepentant open sinner to participate even in the Lord's Supper. And their witness to their mission field was terrible. Now, there are cases when there is sin in the church, but it isn't open sin where all can see it. And there are a couple of Bible instances that we can look at to see how this was dealt with. First, let's look at uh, the case of Ananias and Sapphira that's recorded in Acts chapter 5. We'll just read through this whole scenario here, and then we'll comment on it. Acts 5, verse 1, But a certain man named Ananias... Now, before this, if you back up to verse 4, the end of verse 4, it talks about... Uh, all people had had sold their their houses and things and given all to the work. And so it leads right into chapter 5. It says, But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? 
Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. Now you'll notice that Peter didn't threaten him with judgment at all there, did he? He's warning him, isn't he? Verse 5, And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. And the young men arose and wound him up and carried him out and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether ye sold the land for so much. And she said, Yeah, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door and shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. Great fear. Isn't that interesting? Friends, the the mere retention by Ananias, a part of the selling price of the land, was not in itself a sin. <laughs> I tell people that, and some people are like, "What?" Ananias holding back part of the selling price of the land was not in itself a sin. Actually, he he was under no compulsion to give anything, was he? They didn't say, Ananias, you've got to sell your land and give us some of it. It was his choice. He had professed a willingness, you see, to give, but he was not obliged to give any fixed amount. You see, the money was his own to give in whole or in part. And this is what Peter had said to him. But the part, the part that they brought was as though it was the whole price, see? And this was the deception. It was an acted lie. And Peter, he traced evil to its source. His knowledge of what Ananias and Sapphira were doing came from the gift of discernment. Remember the gifts of the Spirit? He had discernment. And in sad contrast to this, Ananias had opened his heart to Satan until his mind was, his mind was full of covetous and deceitful thoughts. And remember, we read in our Sabbath school, all the thoughts are to come into captivity of Christ important. It may just save us, friends. It will save us, actually. Now, this was a terrible judgment, wasn't it? It was a terrible judgment. But, I, but it was understandable. You see, Ananias and Sapphira were members of the infant, small, growing apostolic church. They had drawn near to God. They had undoubtedly tasted some of the, you know, the heavenly gifts of salvation, Perhaps they had received some of the gifts of the, of the Spirit even. But by a false spirit they had committed an act of sacrilege. If not strikingly and visibly met in these early days of the church, such acts of deception might have undermined the entire work of the apostles and the spreading of the gospel. So God interposed here to save His church from greater dangers and evil. See, it was God Himself who weighed Ananias and Sapphira and, and He found them wanting, just like Belshazzar. And God dealt with their sins swiftly so all the church could see and learn that God reads the heart. God judges. God protects His church. 
in instances himself. Notice this, this is from Acts of the Apostles, page 73. God hates hypocrisy and falsehood. Ananias and Sapphira practiced fraud in their dealing with God. They lied to the Holy Spirit, and their sin was visited with swift and terrible judgment. Infinite wisdom saw that this signal manifestation of the wrath of God was necessary to guard the young church from becoming demoralized. This judgment testified that men cannot deceive God, that He detects the hidden sin of the heart. And that, notice that, that He does what? Detects the hidden sin of the heart and that He will not be mocked. Friends, I, I've had to warn people of this too often today. And they're indifferent to it. God is not mocked, friends. She says it was designed as a warning to the church to lead them to avoid pretense and hypocrisy and to beware of what? Robbing God. We rob God in many ways, don't we? In this instance, it had to do with with, uh, money, finances. Now, this doesn't mean that Ananias had not lied to at all to the men there, but that his offense lay primarily in the fact that he had presumed to deceive God. Now, all sin is ultimately against God, isn't it? Although it also gravely affects men. Ananias had either ignored God or thought he could deceive him as he'd hoped to deceive his brethren. On either count, he was sinning against God and he was struck down as an example to the church. And fear of this sort would be a deterrent upon any who would, uh, maybe they were not completely sincere in their profession of Christianity. This said, great fear came upon all those who heard of these things. Sometimes, what can we learn from this? Sometimes those who have the gift of discernment are moved to act as Peter did in confronting the sinner in an effort to bring forth repentance and warning of coming judgment from God what Peter was doing. In this example, Peter discerned what was going on. He confronted the two fraudulent members in an effort to open their eyes to their course and bring them to repentance. Peter did not condemn them. You don't see it anywhere in there that he condemned them. But warned them that they were sinning against the Holy Spirit. It was God who meted out punishment very swiftly in this case. As a warning to all that God is not mocked. A second lesson for us on dealing with secret sins that exist in the church is found in Joshua chapter 7. We dealt some time with this before, but not exactly in this uh, particular lesson learned there in that chapter. God had told Joshua that Jericho would fall by the power of God and warned Joshua and the rest of his people there, all the leaders, all the people, that they were not to take anything that was to belong to God from Jericho. Remember? However, there was a man named Achan who disobeyed God and secretly stole several items from Jericho. He buried them under his tent. And for the longest time, only the only ones who really knew of it were Achan, of course, and his immediate family. No one else knew of it. Then Joshua gathered 
force of 3,000 men. He attacked the city of Ai, thinking that God was with them. After all, look what happened to Jericho, right? However, God was not with them because of the secret sin of Achan. And Joshua's attack failed and 36 men died. And Joshua returned from being spanked there at Ai, very troubled. And what did he do? He humbled himself before God, pleading for an answer, and here's what the Lord said. Go to Joshua 7, verse 12. It says, Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they were accursed. Neither will I be with you any more, except ye destroy the accursed from among you. So he says, get up, sanctify the people and say, sanctify yourselves against tomorrow. For thus say the Lord God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in the midst of thee. O Israel, thou canst not stand before thine enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. Sanctify yourselves. What's he saying? Go, look at yourselves, search yourselves. Do you have something that has caused God's frown to be upon us. Verse 14, In the morning therefore ye shall be brought according to your tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord taketh shall come according to the families thereof. And the family which the Lord shall take shall come by households, and the household which the Lord shall take shall come man by man. You see what's going on here, friends? We're going to start bringing everybody up here. We're going to seek this out. Tribe by tribe. We find the tribe, then we're going to go to the family. We find the family, we're going to go to the household. We find the household, we're going to go to each person in the household. Now God told Joshua that they failed because he wasn't with him. And he was not with them because there was sin in the camp. And as we spoke of before, in corporate responsibility. You know, Israel was held corporately accountable. The guilt was attributed to all Israel. God was not to be charged with that humiliating defeat. When we sin, it's not that God has deserted us, it's that we disobeyed. <laughs> Our sin has caused the separation. And so, God told Joshua how to rectify this by searching out the sin and making it right. They went tribe by tribe, family by family, individual by individual, until the sin was exposed and dealt with. And only then could God be with His people again and bless them. Notice this from Patriarchs and Prophets speaking to this. When the church is in difficulty, when coldness and spiritual declension exist, giving occasion for the enemies of God to triumph, then instead of folding their hands and lamenting their unhappy state, let its members inquire if there is not an Achan in the camp. Interesting statement there. With humiliation and searching of heart, let each seek to discover the hidden sins that shut out God's presence. Isn't that interesting? Let its members inquire if there is not an Achan in the camp. How did Israel deal with it? God laid out principles. They went tribe by tribe, right? Family by family, individual by individual. 
till the sin was exposed and dealt with. Now, we don't have a sin police in the church. But friends, we're to go to the Lord. What With what? She says, with humiliation and searching of heart. There are ways to bring it. You can have church meetings, prayer sessions. God will make it plain. Let each seek to discover the hidden sins that shut out God's presence. So these are two cases of secret sin within the church and the two ways that it was dealt with. First, by the spiritual gift of discernment. Right? And second, by the process of humbling the heart and searching it out to discover the hidden sin. And we start with our hearts. We humble ourselves. If somebody's not willing to humble themselves, there should be a flag right there. Don't you think? Achan never humbled himself. They went through that entire process. And even he was brought out to the door of his tent before he... Well, I am caught now. He had all this time to repent. Be brought back into to the divine providence with God, to be brought back into the family. And he didn't. There are two more biblical principles God gives His people for dealing with sin in the church. One principle is to be used for open sin or public trans, uh, trespasses, such as what we saw in 1 Corinthians 5, or by ministers of the gospel who are very much in public view. The other is to be used when someone sins against you personally and secretly. And what I mean by that, not necessarily in public. Let's start in the first epistle to Timothy. And I'll wrap up part one here with this. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 19. Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Them that sin rebuke before all that others also may fear. Okay. Sadly, I've seen this scripture abused on numerous occasions. What happens all too often is that many will claim verse 20 without noticing verse 19. And so they jump the gun and make false accusations against a minister or elder before confirming that there are more than one witness and that the witnesses are credible and the reports are accurate. That happens all too often. All them that sin rebuke before all that others may fear. Wait a minute. Before an elder, a leader, someone who God has called, you're not to receive an accusation unless you have two or three credible witnesses and found the story is accurate. Too often it seems that accusations are made without Accurate reports and credible witnesses. The devil does that. He uses people to do that. Notice this, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 386. The Bible specially teaches us to beware of lightly bringing accusation against those whom God has called to act as His ambassadors. The Apostle Peter, describing a class who are abandoned sinners, says... 
Presumptuous are they, self-willed, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Whereas angels, which are greater in power and might, bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord. 2 Peter 2, verses 10 and 11. And Paul, in his instruction for those who are placed over the church, says, Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. 1 Timothy 5.19, we just read that. He who has placed upon men the heavy responsibility of leaders and teachers of his people will hold the people accountable for the manner in which they treat his servants. We are to honor those whom God has honored. The judgment visited upon Miriam should be a rebuke to all who yield to jealousy and murmur against those upon whom God lays the burden of His work. And we'll get to that example uh, in part two a little bit. We'll speak about Miriam and that example there. But in his letter to Timothy, Paul's saying that when it comes to rebuking someone for a sin committed in public, especially against a, 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 an elder, a minister, there must first be a record of these wrongs attested to by credible witnesses. The rebuke cannot be based upon hearsay or the testimony of just one witness. That person may be jealous. That person may seek revenge for a rebuke or or some other reason. And it's got to be accurate, an accurate uh, um, rebuke an accurate accusation. There may be two or three witnesses that seem to be credible. I've had accusations thrown at me from time to time. And people have taken those accusations and wanted to rebuke me for things I've never done. They've never spoken to me. See, there's a process that you go through. They never went through the process. These principles I'm bringing out, God lays out. Something else that I just want to bring to your attention too is that we're not to make a brother an offender for a word either. We are all humans. We all do make mistakes. Oftentimes when speaking, we make mistakes. You know, sometimes we get our words mixed up. That happens to me. And you know it happens to me. We say things we didn't intend to say. Sometimes our mouth doesn't say what our brain means it to say. It's just a simple mistake. Yeah, it happens to me from time to time as I speak before the public. All will misspeak from time to time. We may use a word that we didn't mean to word. I, I've had people come up to me and say, you said this one time, and I'm like, are you for sure I said that? I can't imagine I ever said that. And I've gone back and listened to recording. I'll, I'll be, I did say that, but that's not what I meant. <laughs> so it happens. Let's not make a brother an offender for a word. Now, If the charge has been confirmed now by credible witnesses, again, more than one, two to three witnesses, and they're credible, they don't have an ulterior motive, they know the situation, etc., and it is a public sin, then the member must be rebuked before all in a public way. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 2 says that we are to preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering, and doctrine. And why are we charged to do this? Why? What's the what's the the whole point of it? 
He goes on to say, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. So, beloved, if we, if we truly love God and we love those who are in this type of a situation, the biblical reaction to it may just save them. And our inaction may just cost them their eternal life. And it may just cost us our own. Now, if the one being rebuked does not repent or doesn't even care to hear, they're indifferent to it, then, as Paul told the church at Corinth, they must be removed from the church immediately. There must not be any socializing with them. They have to be given a chance to see how serious their conduct is and the church has to be seen as a body that does not condone sin in any way. And the only socialization that you have with them is to compassionately call them to repentance. Because if you socialize them with any other way, friends, you will cement them into their sin. I've seen it. It's happened. It's happened within our own church before. The second principle is found in Matthew chapter 18 and we'll get to it next time. And so, friends, until then, study to show thyselves approved unto God, a workman that needed not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Amen? Let's, let's have a word of prayer. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, again, we thank you so much for this beautiful Sabbath day. We rejoice that we can come together and sing praises to your name, that we can be led to the truth by the promise that you've given us in your word of the Holy Spirit that you poured out upon us here today. We thank you that you've laid out principles for for everything in our walk, every instance that we can run into. You've laid these principles out that protect us, protect the body of Christ, protect our witness and our our testimony, the spreading of the gospel. Father, please be with all those who've heard this, who may have questions, lead them into the truth, help them to study these things out. And may we behave in such a way that will bring glory to Thy name and bringing many, many to the truth and to salvation. Not just by our words, but our deeds, Lord. Please continue to bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.